Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. When we get pregnant, everybody talks about the baby. And when the baby is born, a lot of the attention can go towards this new human being. But what about the mother? Alexandra Sachs, MD, is a reproductive psychiatrist who popularized the concept of matrescence. In her 2018 TED Talk that reached 1.5 million views worldwide, she wrote a New York Times article called The Birth of a Mother, and it was the number one most read piece of 2017 for the Well Family section. The focus? The feelings, the emotions, and the journey that is your path from woman to motherhood. From the early days of even seeding and starting to think about the ideas of motherhood and what they mean to you, to the experience of being pregnant, all the way through the feelings and complex emotions that come with being a mom. Alexandra Sachs is the co-author of What No One Tells You, a guide to your emotions from pregnancy to motherhood. The book addresses questions like, even after months of trying, is it normal to panic when you find out that you're pregnant? Is it normal if you don't feel love at at first sight with your baby? Is it normal to feel like a failure if you're breastfeeding? And what about if you feel totally overwhelmed and zonked by mommy brain? Is that normal? They say, yes, all of this is normal. All of these emotions and experiences, normal. In the book, two of America's top reproductive psychiatrists reassure you that the answer is yes. What they do is they provide a psychological and hormonal backstory to these complicated emotions that women can experience, and they show why matrescence is so natural and normal. This idea of the birth of the mother is a time when it can be as stressful and as transformative as adolescence was. In today's episode, we get to have her on the show, and we talk about the bliss myth, the myth that mothers should feel bliss and only happiness and joy. We talk about why it's important to understand and hold that we can feel multiple emotions at the same time. We also chat about why it's not necessarily an easy fix to resolve emotions. Sometimes we just need emotions to take their own time. And we also talk about the concept of the good enough mother, popularized by psychologist Winnicott, and how this idea of the good enough mother might help us relax and relieve a little bit of the pressure. Let's get started. Alexandra, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you work as a reproductive psychiatrist. Can you talk about how did you first get into this field and this work? And what does it mean to be a reproductive psychiatrist? Yeah, sure. So I'm a medical doctor and I went through medical school and then psychiatry training. And I loved, I loved psychiatry because it gave me the most opportunity to spend talking with patients. And I'm really a person who is a lover of storytelling and stories and story listening. And I think that's what brings me both to psychiatry and writing. But in my experience, I was not only talking to patients who were in the psychiatric floors, I was really enjoying my conversations with patients on my other rotations. And so one of those areas was on the OB floor. And just, I think, you know, one of the earliest cases I remember was when I was in med school, I was pretty young myself, and I was assigned to work with an OB on a delivery of, it was a 15-year-old girl who was delivering a baby. And this experience, I was on call, and we spent about 20 hours together through the delivery of her daughter. 
And moments like those were just life changing for me to be a part of experiences in the hospital that were so happy and health oriented, which is so different from, from the other floors, to be a part of someone's life that is so personal and intimate and, and life changing for them. And to just it's just literally the miracle of life to be invited into someone's experience while they're welcoming their child into the world. I just fell in love with it. And then, you know, learned about this area of reproductive psychiatry, which is sort of the intersection between OBGYN and psychiatry. So the opportunity to speak with women about their emotions really just felt like my home. I always had a political interest in feminism and in women's issues. I worked for a violence against women organization. And so I felt so inspired also just by the values of the community, my colleagues who have been, you know, the, the people who, who mentored me, who've been in this, in this field for decades, who've been fighting for women's rights, women's equality, reproductive rights. And I was sort of ushered into an era of reproductive psychiatry when we were sort of trying to expand education and advocacy around postpartum depression. And so the area that I was trained in initially was in how to advise women about things like, is it safe to take my Prozac during pregnancy? Or what do I do if I'm feeling depressed and I have a new baby? And I was trained in managing people with a history of depression during pregnancy because antidepressants are one of the most commonly prescribed medications for women of reproductive age, but general OBs and psychiatrists historically didn't know how to advise women about if it was safe or not to stay on their antidepressants. So I was trained in that area, which of course needs continued education advocacy. But my work over the past few years and kind of expanding now has gone one step beyond postpartum depression into the natural course of psychology that women experience during pregnancy and new motherhood. And this is the field of matrescence, which is the identity transition to motherhood. So it's, it's not illness oriented. It, it, it doesn't require treatment. And that, that's what makes it different from postpartum depression. But I still think that we need to do a better job educating women about what sorts of psychological experiences they're going to encounter during pregnancy and new motherhood that's based on identity shifts and hormones and relationship changes and body changes. And all of those changes run the gamut from blissful and the best day of my life, which is what I think we, we hear about already, to anxiety provoking and guilt inducing. Those are also natural and normal feelings and psychological phenomenon that women experience. And having going through that diversity of emotions doesn't necessarily mean that you have postpartum depression at all. It's, it's, it's natural to the course of matrescence. So that's the heart of what I'm doing right now as a reproductive psychiatrist. You bring to f this phrase to light matrescence about the shift in, and transition to motherhood. You've been on the TED stage talking about it. You wrote a piece for the New York Times called The Birth of the Mother. Can you talk about what matrescence is and, and why you brought it forward in our cultural lexicon? Yeah, absolutely. And right now, the matrescence educational movement is being directed into a book that I co-authored with Catherine Berndorf. That's called What No One Tells You and my podcast, Motherhood Sessions with Gimlet Media. Those are continuing on the matrescence 
conversation that really was started with that New York Times article, Birth of a Mother for Me, matrescence sounds like adolescence. And it's a phrase that was coined in 1973 by an amazing woman whose name was Dana Raphael. She was a medical anthropologist. And she's also credited as being one of the first people to use the word doula. So she was really ahead of her time. And she wanted to find a way to talk to people about how this is a transition in life. And it's body changes, it's hormone changes, and it's identity changes. And we understand that that's what teenagers go through. That's what the word adolescence means to us. We associate, when we, say, when we think of adolescence, we think of phrases like awkward, we think of pimples, we think of an in-between liminal state, not quite a child, but not quite an adult yet. Now, matrescence is the arc of what this is like for women when they're going from their lives before motherhood into motherhood. And it captures a very same phenomenon that adolescence captures because it's both body, hormone, and identity. It's all of those. So matrescence is the natural identity transition into motherhood. And just like adolescence, you know, we don't pin it down and describe it like a science. You know, we talk about things like late adolescence, which describes maybe people in their late 20s who are still living with their parents. We, we talk about that in psychology right now, the late adolescence. So adolescence isn't only for ages, you know, 13 to 21. It's, it's, we, we think of it as sort of a case-by-case basis for how the transition impacts you. And the same is true for matrescence. So for some women in their contemplative years, when they're thinking about their family planning, do I want to be a mom? How do I want to factor that into my life? What am I observing about other women I'm, I'm seeing as role models? So that might be the beginning of your matrescent story. You know, for other women, I think Lena Dunham's an amazing example, writing about her endometriosis and hysterectomy. She also talks about her ideas about motherhood, and that's a matrescent story. An infertility story could be the beginning of matrescent story. And then matrescent, we follow through pregnancy, through new motherhood. But, you know, I talk to women about their matrescence. My work focuses right now on pregnancy in the first year of motherhood. But there are so many moments where things get stirred up, you know, in the flying the nest years when children leave home and maybe move out to go to college, that may intersect with a hormonal change in a woman's life too, as she's nearing menopause. So there are other moments other than pregnancy and new motherhood that are part of the matrescence story. But the advice that I'm really zeroing in on is the months of pregnancy and the first 12 months of motherhood, because it's just a a natural beginning place, because it's a particularly high stress time because the level of responsibility for caring for a newborn is so high and the hormonal transition during pregnancy is so intense. This book that you've written, the What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions Through Pregnancy and New Motherhood, I think one of the major themes that I see is this idea of normalizing the all yes. of the emotions that you and the experiences of this journey through yes. pregnancy or infertility and through all the different ways that motherhood and parenting can look like. And yet in our culture, women are told that you have to experience only joy and contentment. You have to fall in love with your baby right away. What do you think our cultural stories of motherhood are missing or getting or getting wrong or put another way? Yeah. What are stories yeah. we should or be how telling? How did we get here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Actually, I love that question. You know, I think there are multiple sort of things to think about in terms of how we got here with what I call the bliss myth. And that's not to say that moms don't experience bliss. I think they do. I think it's rare that I encounter a mom who hasn't had moments of, of sheer joy in this journey. But just like in every relationship, it's not all joy. It's not all bliss. I mean, we, we know that to be the case for marriage. We know that to be the case for how people relate to their careers and relate to their own parents. So where did we get the concept that it was a constant single note of joy? You know, I think it's really hard for us in our culture to learn how to understand how emotions often live in the gray. And we call that in psychology, we, we call that ambivalence, where you can feel happy and sad. You can feel excited and nervous at the same time. And I think it's, it's a natural human state because our lives and are so rich emotionally and we can be both thrilled that we're becoming a mother and sad that we're leaving that sort of private spontaneous time in our romantic lives with our partner where we were unencumbered by, by childcare. You know, you can feel both at the same time. So I think we need more opportunities in our culture to talk about the gray, to talk about how all sorts of experiences and relationships aren't usually carved out into good or bad. They're usually both and, and that's, that's really how human emotions work in all relationships. Now, I think it's just been scary to talk about it in terms of motherhood because one of the most negative tropes that we have in our culture is the bad mother. And we can think of examples in movies and it's really like the most evil character, right? And we all identify with the child because we've all been children. And so we all have had moments and wounds from our childhood where we, we felt that we were not loved and seen in the ways that we needed. And so no one wants to enter their experience with motherhood being thinking that they might be a bad mother. So I think that in the face of this, people have sort of kept hush-hush these ambivalent feelings, which are absolutely normal, things like I felt bored around my baby, or I wondered if, if becoming a mother was really the right choice for me, or if I would have been happy on a different path in life. Those are absolutely natural questions. Those questions have nothing to do with loving your child enough and nothing to do with giving your child everything they need to feel totally psychologically taken care of. But I think because this fear of falling into the category of the quote, bad mother is so intense, women have not spoken up about the natural emotions that are different from bliss. And I think I take responsibility in the medical community that we haven't always done a great job educating people about the gray and educating people about all the natural emotions that won't hurt your child. It doesn't hurt your child to say, I don't always like the work of parenthood. Disliking the work of parenthood in moments is not the same thing as not loving your child. You can love your child and simultaneously dislike doing the dishes. Those emotions have, are, are totally compatible with each other, you know, and so I think we need to do more work in the medical community. And that's really what the book and the podcast are inspired by this mission to normalize the wide range of emotions that women have and to set examples and provide women with language for how to talk about their experience that goes beyond the, quote, bad mother. And that goes beyond, quote, postpartum depression. 
because these swirling, conflicting feelings are not the same thing as having a depressive episode. That's a medical condition and it's treatable and we need more education and advocacy and research about it. But this wide, expansive, gray emotional zone is a different thing from postpartum depression. This is matrescent. Mm, I love that. And in listeners in the book, she and her co author go through and map out pregnancy and fertility and the first, second and third trimesters and all of the possible different emotions that you can feel, which is a lot of people might feel panic when they find out that they're pregnant, and they're wondering why they don't feel happy and on and on. I was really I felt reassured when I read the book, Good. which is I, I wanted to commend you on this because I think I think a lot of times talking about all of this can sometimes fall into feeling scared or overwhelmed. And I actually felt like, oh, yep, there I am. There I am again. There I am again. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think, you know, some examples of things that I think are really hard for people to talk about that are in the book are things like finding out you're having a boy when you wanted a girl and you feel secretly disappointed when you know that you should feel I'm so happy that my baby's healthy. Fearing childbirth, being terrified of giving birth. That's a common one. Feeling extremely disappointed in how your mother or mother-in-law steps in and helps or doesn't help. Feeling disconnected from your partner in this time when you maybe thought it was going to be the most bonding, cozy moment as a family. You know, these are all absolutely common things that people talk about behind closed doors in our offices. But I think people feel very taboo about admitting in our culture. So those are the things we talk about in the book. And I hope those and other moments are the the things that have specifically resonated with you as saying, oh, other people felt that way. I mean, also things like there are things even as large as miscarriage. You know, I have patients who've told me I'm the only one of my friends who've had a miscarriage. And statistically, it's just not the case miscarriage rates are just higher than there being one in a hundred. And we just don't talk about the common things enough for people to know in their peer groups that they're not alone. So I'm really glad to hear that the book is sort of had that impact for you because that's our, that's our goal. It also, I think, can help people with empathy in terms of like understanding what their friends are going through. If you have a different experience, they could be feeling all of these wild things You have talked about this idea of the bad mother, right? Like nobody wants to be the bad mother. But you also brought up in the book this idea of the good enough mother. Can you talk about what that is? Sure. So the good enough mother is a concept that was developed a long time ago by a British pediatrician who was also a psychoanalyst who worked with children. His name was Donald Winnicott, and he observed this generations ago, that women felt a certain pressure to be perfect, right? And that that was impossible, that you can only be a human being with your child. You don't have the option to click into being a superhero because you're, you're just human. And how do we identify what it means to be human? It means that you're imperfect. It means that you're an organic living thing that is unpredictable, that makes mistakes, that has to just do their best from moment to moment. And he saw that there were basic things that babies and children needed and that that were essential. And we kind of know what they are. They're obvious. They're just a foundation of love, feeling love, basic things like food and shelter and safety. 
basic ingredients where if you don't have them, we worry about kids, we worry about attachment, we worry about neglect. But if you have them, if you're in a loving home where your basic needs are met, that is the foundation, the recipe for growing up to be a psychologically healthy person. And you don't need a perfect mother. And, you know, our current understanding with things like helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting have even led us to understand that when we strive to be perfect mothers, it can actually have a harmful effect on our children because we may interfere with their growth and resiliency if we're always at their beck and call, preventing discomfort, preventing struggle. It may interfere with their learning process and ability to develop and grow. And that may actually be a problematic approach to parenting. So we can't be perfect. We're humans, not robots. And the good news is in order to raise a great, healthy, emotionally sound, happy kid, you don't have to be perfect. That's what the good enough mother is all about. Oh, it's such a it's such a relief in our household. My partner and I are always just being like good enough and shrugging when we can't execute everything because we just can't we cannot. So I love this. Right. And also just know like, it's. I think it's, these moments are so hard for us to accept when we have to recognize how little is out of our control. Like, let's say you planned this great day where you were going to take your kids to the park, and then you were going to have an opportunity to read this book and then maybe eat some healthy food and let's say that day goes off the rails you know you're stuck in traffic and you know you you, you only have snacks in the back seat and you spend several hours stuck together in the car and you're and you're feeling that you failed but that's we don't know that that's a moment where your child is actually getting less that could be a moment where you use the resources you have in the card to come up with some extremely creative form of play where you can sort of share in an adversity together and teach how you can sort of make light, make lemonade out of lemons. You know, that could be a memory that your child walks away with as like a great day. But if, if it doesn't stick with your plan and you walk away feeling like you failed and say good enough, you know, it's great to reassure yourself, but also know that, you know, it's not always bad when things are unexpected. It's not always, it's, when things don't go according to plan, it's not always a, a, a lesser version for your kids. I love that. I love knowing both that all of these emotions, this broad spectrum range, like you can find out that so many of them are, are actually quite normal and and common. And then also that there's so much beyond our control. I want to ask you about metabolizing emotions, though, and how to process them. Because I mean, I have a I have a new baby that is six months old. And one of these nights here recently, he was crying. And I was like, well, you're fed, you're this, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I found out in the morning that he had a poopy diaper, and I just hadn't checked. And I felt like a terrible parent. And and yet he's going to in the long run, be absolutely fine. There's a little bit of diaper rash, he'll be okay. But I still have the residue or the emotional hangover, and it takes me longer to process it than ostensibly than him, although he's not speaking, so I don't know. How do you deal with or how do you help people with metabolizing the emotions and dealing with the feelings? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I appreciate your candor about sharing that vulnerable moment for you. I think in sharing moments where we, we feel fragile and unsure of ourselves, we really change this bliss myth culture and that's that's the way to do it is just by what you did by sharing a moment where where you you think that you might have made a mistake because 
everybody's been there, right? It's just, you didn't check something, you didn't know something. And how do you forgive yourself? You know, I think it really goes back to this issue around control. And I think it's about kind of reminding yourself in a way that's sort of humbling in the universe that you're not all knowing and all seeing, you're just not. And that reminding yourself that you don't need to be, that you are the best mother that your child needs. And babies, you know, that bond, that that maternal bond is so powerful and soulfully nutritious that you with your flaws, you with your holding and cooing and caring, but not checking the poopy diaper is exactly who your baby needs you to be. And that accepting yourself, that who you are today is truly the person your child needs most. That if you were replaced by someone who checked that poopy diaper, that your baby wouldn't have you. (laughs) And that bond is more powerful than anything else. That bond, that attachment is the biggest, the biggest health promoting thing your child is going to get. And it pales in comparison to diaper rash, you know, and, but you can't control everything. You're the best mom your baby needs, but you can't control everything, including your own human ability to read situations. You know, sometimes you're going to be tired and you're going to you're going to forget. You're going to forget to bring an extra bottle or you're going to forget to check the diaper. But that's a, that's a moment of your humanity peeking through. And that's a moment to remind yourself in a humble way. I'm just a person, but I'm the best person my child needs as their mother. If you replace me with a robot, <laughs> that would that would not be better for my baby. My baby needs me, warts and all. And I think, you know, this begins with a poopy diaper. But, you know, later on in life where... It's a moment where you maybe lose your cool and let's say you're in traffic and you yell at another car and and then you have a moment of shame and regret. Oh, I don't want to show that example around my children of being someone who loses my temper. It's being imperfect around your children gives them the example that they too are allowed to make mistakes, that they don't have to feel shamed and self-critical when they catch themselves in human moments of making human errors. And that part of psychological health is acknowledging, admitting I made a mistake and figuring out how you can learn from it and grow. And we call that grit. And grit is one of the most important things you can teach a child that will help set them up for future success. It's really tolerating moments of failure and not beating themselves up and using it as a growth opportunity. So Yes, you know, today it's a poopy diaper and your your child may not learn from it. Though, in truth, you know, moments of physical frustration do in in limited quantities are part of how babies grow and learn how to self-soothe. But over time, giving yourself permission, accepting that you're this imperfect human who's there to raise your kids is going to allow them to love themselves when they recognize their own human imperfections. And that is really important for preventing things like depression, like, you know, destructive self-criticism that can be oppressive to children when they get the message, oh, we're all perfect in this house. 
you know, I'm a perfect mom. I always check diapers. I always prepare in advance. I always, and you should too. And what happens when a child encounters their own perfect imperfections and has to face that, you know? So it's really just leaving space for your own humanity, which is a very important example for your children. So bringing this even to a more cultural point of view or like social point of view, you mentioned how complicated the emotions can be. You know, people can feel multiple things at the same time. And and one of the examples I remember from the book is somebody who finds out that they're pregnant, but was dealing with either infertility or a pregnancy loss beforehand. You can have and hold all of those emotions at one time and not feel the way that you expect. Do you have strategies or recommendations for how to deal with and process the storm of stories and feelings that can be inside of anyone at any one time? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one thing is, you know, metabolize is a word that is about kind of understanding and integrating feeling. And it's But it can also be misunderstood as a word that means you have to break down the bad feelings so that they go away, get rid of them, clean them up. And I think that's number one, is acknowledging that that is not always psychologically possible. Again, it goes back to control. We don't get to have full control over our lives and our emotions. So sad things happen. A miscarriage is sad you know, and you don't get to scrub away that feeling. Just because you're ready to move on, it lingers sometimes. And sometimes grief just takes time, right? That's like an age old, an age old saying, it takes time, you don't need a psychiatrist to tell you that. But what it means is that sometimes there's nothing you can do to speed up the process. And so giving yourself permission to have feelings that are different from bliss, that are different from happiness and knowing it's not going to hurt your baby. It's not going to hurt your ability to also feel joy. You don't have to put that pressure in yourself where you have to grub away that sadness. It's you can feel sad about a miscarriage and happy about a new pregnancy at the same time. And you know what? If it doesn't happen at the same time and you're just feeling sad for a while, that's also okay. You know, babies are resilient creatures. And if you shed some tears during your pregnancy, because you're, you're, you're sad about your prior loss, it's not going to hurt your baby. You're just having feelings, right? And of course, if, if the feelings are leading into a clinical depression, it is important to get professional help, right? So that we can keep your whole body and mind healthy for yourself and for the health of your pregnancy. But there's room for all of these different swirling feelings. I think pregnancy and new motherhood is, like you said, it's a time where there are all these stories come up. So how to cope with that is, I think, having supportive community. It may be other moms. It may be friends who aren't moms who are just great listeners or who will help remind you of who you were before this whole process. It may be online communities. Some online communities are scary for people and stressful and make them worry that they're doing things wrong. But other online communities are extremely supportive. And I really work on that on my Alexander Sachs MD Motherhood Unfiltered Project. And, you know, things like journaling, maybe talking to a therapist if that feels right to you just kind of sharing what you're going through is part of how we process and metabolize 
and feel less alone and feel less afraid, right? Just because you're having an uncomfortable feeling, like a sadness around a prior loss, doesn't mean anything wrong. It just means that that you're acknowledging what really happened and how you really feel. And I think sometimes saying it out loud makes you realize, oh, it's just a feeling. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to hurt my future child. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a feeling. And sometimes you need to kind of write it out or speak it out or hear it from someone else's mouth or read it in a book in order to know that and be, and feel less afraid. Can you tell us about this motherhood unfiltered project? What is it? Yeah, sure. So it's really just kind of encouraging people to use the hashtag. I was I sort of started it around when the Me Too hashtag was starting and I was so in awe of how women could band together in a place that can be very destructive for women, which is social media and the online world, to band together and name something that had prior been unnamed, to sort of shed light on the invisible, which is, I think, so much of how we can support each other as women, is to name what we feel, but what we don't focus on every day because we're just living our lives. And I think Me Too did that with sexual harassment and assault. Motherhood Unfiltered is just a hashtag that is basically saying, try not to filter everything. See what happens if you tell the truth. See what happens if you describe your version without filtering it so that it looks better than it is. (laughs) Because I think that's what we do on social media for everything. But it's a big part of what we associate with, you know, the baby shower and everyone smiling in the photo as if no one in the family is fighting, you know, or your birth photo with looking glowing as if you're not also kind of in pain from your stitches. You know, you don't, have to hide the gray. (laughs) You don't have to hide the other parts of the experience in order to capture it all. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't use social media as as a place for fantasy and aspiration. Like, I get it. That's great. It's a great escape. But I think we also need to use it, especially for moms who are stuck at home, right? And who can't get out to mom's group. We need to use it, social media, as a place where people can congregate and get validation that what their real lives are like is what most other people's real lives are like. Whereas I think, you know, the filtering causes so many people to look at images on social media and think, oh, I'm the only one who's having a hard time, when it's just not true. So that's what Motherhood Unfiltered is. (laughs) You have a TED Talk that has reached a million and a half views, and it came out recently, uh, less than a year ago, in May 2018, as part of the TED residency. Can you talk about what happened, if anything, what happened to your practice and your work as a result of this TED Talk going live? Yeah, you know, my practice is pretty separate. I keep it pretty separate from this other work. And I love working in my office with patients. It's, It's so rewarding and enriching to me. So sure, I mean, I think maybe and some of my patients have seen the TED Talk and some of us talk have talked about it in session together. But I think that, you know, I really try to keep my therapeutic encounters with people about them, not about me. So it, it hasn't impacted my practice that much. But what it has impacted is this other part of my public health work, 
which is separate from my practice. And that's really the writing and the speaking. And, you know, it's given me the opportunity to be on your podcast today. I hear from women all around the world. The TED Talk has been translated. I don't, I haven't kept track recently, but well over 15 languages. I just got an email from someone yesterday who was asking me if she could translate my motherhood unfiltered Instagram stuff into Arabic. I've gotten emails from people all over Asia. There's a whole community in Australia and New Zealand, women in England. I've heard from women all around the world. And What's been really exciting is to learn that these feelings are not just applied to like the average American mom, that there's something universal about this, this phenomenon of how do we as women find a place for ourselves in our culture today where we are both have this extraordinary power to be the birthing and to do the caretaking but how do we also hold on to other parts of our identity? Because all over the world now more than ever, women work, you know, women do other things in addition to raise children and have babies. And I think all around the world, in America and elsewhere, women are trying to figure out how do we in this very exciting time where women have the opportunity to do so much, how do we relate to the identities of motherhood and the identities of everything else we want? and need and have to offer our culture. Because TED circulates all over the world, it was an extraordinary privilege to share this idea with women all over the world. And it's been so moving to, to get responses and feedback from all of them. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Where can people find out more about you and your work or join this conversation online? Yeah, please find me at alexandrasaxmd.com. And on social media, Alexander Sachs, MD, you'll also see on my website that my podcast with Gimlet Media is now in its second week. It started April 11th, so we'll see where it is by the time this podcast airs. But that is the heart of really what I'm working on right now, because it's sharing the stories of real moms who are sharing their struggles. So please go visit my website to check it out and you can find out more information about my co-authored book there and social media initiatives there as well. I will link everything in the show notes for people listening. I will link the book, What No One Tells You, and the podcast, The Motherhood Sessions, as well as her social media links. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me and for all the amazing work you're doing. Everyone, if you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, I want to take just a minute to tell you about a couple of episodes that you might also enjoy. Go back through our archives and take a look for episode number 104. We talked to Vanessa Van Edwards, who is the best-selling author of the book Captivate, all about her experience transitioning to motherhood and those first few weeks of parenting and what nobody tells you. That's episode number 104. You can find our episodes by going into your browser and typing startuppregnant.com slash 104 for the episode number, and it'll take you right there. I also think you might enjoy episode 94 with Kimberly Ann Johnson, who is the author of The Fourth Trimester, who also talks about this journey into the postpartum period and new motherhood. And if you want to hear my story a little bit more, I recorded a series of episodes with Carrie Fortin 
on my journey into having a second baby, and I recorded the experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, the uncertain, the confusing, the overwhelming, all of them in a series of episodes in the 80s. So check out episode number 81, where we talk about what it's like to talk about the really hard things, and episode number 86 where we talk about how I prepared for maternity leave and how she prepared for maternity leave because that is a particularly challenging puzzle for new entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in a country that doesn't have much in the way of maternity leave policy or protection. So the episodes that I recommend you go check out are 81, 86, 94, and 104. If you are a longtime listener and you've been listening to them straight through, then I will see you on the next episode. Episode.